The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I'm continuing a series of talks on integrating practice in daily life. And I've been talking recently about the five precepts as one way to help us use our daily life, our ordinary experience in the world, um, as a place of cultivating both calm and wisdom or insight. So in the path that the Buddha laid out, where uh, it's generally taught as an integrated path where we're developing both insight and calm, tranquility together. And the calm and tranquility support deeper insight. And the more wisdom we have, in other words, we could say the more skill we have, then we're able to cultivate more calm in our life. We're just more skillful. We're not doing things that create a lot of guilt and remorse. And so we're just more relaxed, feel more safe, feel like we actually belong in our life, belong in our relationships more. And so there's more calm and tranquility, which allows for deeper insight, which allows for greater skillfulness. And you can see how it builds together. And so that's generally what we do in our formal sitting practice. We're cultivating calm, like returning the attention to the breath, something ordinary like the breath. Every time we do that, that means the mind isn't worrying, it isn't planning, it isn't remembering something or comparing ourselves to somebody else, all of which is agitating. So when we bring the attention back, when we train the mind to keep coming back to the body, coming back to the breath, we're calming it. Being mindful of ordinary experience is peaceful. You can just see. I mean, watch people who knit or, you know, people who like gardening, who are really into the activity of gardening. If it isn't a chore for them, it's, if it's something they really like doing, just sort of getting involved in that ordinary activity of digging or whatever you do when you garden is calming. It's peaceful. There's an interesting article. This is sort of an aside. There's an interesting article in the New York Times, I think today, I don't know, maybe some of you saw it, about tinnitus, that what is thought to be a disease of people who hear the, the background sound, like a buzz or a vibration. And um, what's interesting, this is, this is a technique that's taught in mindfulness circles, like to pay attention to that background hum or the background buzz. But for some people, it's like a serious affliction. They hate it. And the, the sort of reacting to the sound creates a real problem for these people. It's a real cause for stress. Other people, like me and a lot of other people who use that background sound as a mindfulness object, when I hear it, it's sort of like, ah, I can relax, my heart opens, because I've been practicing with it for a while. And what they found in the research, and you can see this in the article, is that it's not so much uh, the ringing of the sound that's the problem. It's what people's minds do to that sound, how they relate to the sound that's the problem. So if you think it's bad having that ringing, and then you notice it, just like you're going to kind of freak out. It's the same thing like if you strain your back, and then you freak out about your back being strained, you start to tighten up around the injury. And then eventually what can happen, and often does happen, is the reaction to the injury becomes more of an injury than the actual injury. Or in this case, the reaction to hearing that sound becomes more of a bother than hearing the sound ever was. And uh, in this way, you know, we can, this is how we can cultivate wisdom all day long, bringing mindfulness we start to see how our reactions to life, to the different events or experiences that we have, set things in motion, set a reactive pattern in motion that becomes a real weight in our lives, a real weight on the heart. But to notice that, we have to be somewhat calm. 
So I've been giving various strategies over the last eight weeks now about how to integrate practice in daily life, like slowing down or just relaxing the heart. It makes us more sensitive. The great thing about insight, the development of wisdom or skillfulness in life, it inevitably arises, it unavoidably arises to the degree that we're actually sensitive to experience. <clears throat> That's all it needs. We just need to be really sensitive to what's happening, and the insight arises naturally, organically out of that. So instead of directly trying to get wise or trying to get skillful, which doesn't work because that's just greediness, what we do, what actually leads to skillfulness, to wisdom, is doing whatever we can to cultivate sensitivity. And tranquility is one of the best ways to be more sensitive. The more tranquil the mind is, if we don't go to sleep, if we're really tranquil but not dull, we're very sensitive. Like, if you ever found yourself in the woods and you weren't sleepy, but you're really tranquil, it's like you hear so much more and you notice so much more, the colors, the sounds, just the smells. Everything comes alive in the tranquility. Because the tranquility is uh, the kind of energetic effect of the mind not being preoccupied, right? Because when the mind's preoccupied, it's agitated. That's its agitated state. So when the mind doesn't feel like it has anything special to do, that's a calming, peaceful state. So we can, we can sort of go there directly by sort of mimicking what tranquility is like by slowing down and relaxing a little bit. Even though we may not feel like slowing down, and even though we don't feel like relaxing, we just sort of do it anyway. It's like an imitation, but the mind and the body play together in this way. So what we do to the body, slowing it down, softening it, it affects the mind. So this is one of the easiest ways to practice in your daily life. And I've mentioned this every week now for eight weeks, so I'm just encouraging myself and all of us to just in little corners of our life just slow down a little bit and soften the heart a little bit and see what you notice that you wouldn't otherwise notice. And then the other, uh, the second way of practicing in daily life that I've been talking about is just to bring to mind freedom. Like, uh, I mean, you can do this in a creative way, like how would the Buddha how would he be? How would Mother Teresa be in this situation? Or what, uh, what would this heart, mind, body be like if there were no fear now, no need, no greed? What would that look like? So whatever situation you're at work, you know, and the boss is not having a good day, and so you could just remind yourself, well, what would it be like not to have any fear of this person? not to have any need to impress this person, not to be for or against anything, to be free. And then just do what you would you're, you know, do with the moments asking you to do. So it's like a, a direct experimentation with being content and free in the moment. And you can just play with that. Not in a way that creates a lot of judgment, you know. Oh, I can't do this. But just to see what happens, like maybe this moment is suitable for being free, as opposed to the moment we think we need in order to be free or at ease. And then the last several weeks now, I've been talking about the five training precepts that the Buddha suggests for lay people, undertaking the precept to refrain from harming living beings, and you can turn this into the positive. I'll talk about that in a moment. The second one is undertaking the training not to take things that aren't given. The third training is to undertake the training to refrain from uh, uh, sexual misconduct or harming with our sexual energy. The fourth that I've been talking about most recently is 
to undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. And then the fifth, which we'll start, start talking about next week, undertaking the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Or you could broaden this to undertaking the training not to cloud the mind. So these are the five training precepts. And uh, these are meant to help us illuminate our lives so that we can have insight. So with each of these, and you can see really all of them are just variations of the first one, not harming, not harming ourselves or others. Because stealing is a form of harming. Sexual misconduct is a form of harming, of course. Speaking false, falsely uh, or slandering, things like that, that's a form of harming. And although use of intoxicants isn't a form of harming directly, it's in a sense morally neutral, but it increases the probability of harming, you know, because when we're intoxicated, we're less likely to notice when our uh, unskillful conditioning has arisen. And so we're more likely to act it out. So that's why, I'm assuming that's why the Buddha includes the use of intoxicants. So with all of these, there's different ways to practice with these in our daily lives. So you can take any one of them. We're, we've been working with right speech or with uh, uh, har avoiding harmful speech. So we might as well use this. So there's three ways to work with this. And this is mostly what I talked about last week. There's the creative use of restraint. So you could creatively, on your own, not because God is telling you you should or a teacher is telling you you should, but because you feel like it might be useful for yourself, you could take on a particular vow or resolve. Like, in this situation, and then you bring a particular situation to mind, I vow, I undertake the training not to gossip. You know, so you take a particular part of your life where you happen to be around people that like to gossip, and being around them stimulates your own desire to gossip, right? Which often happens when, you know, we tend to vibrate sympathetically. So when we're with people who are really positive, we tend to, the better can habit energy gets stimulated, which is great. But when we're around other people who have other habit energies, those habit energies of ourselves, they get stimulated. So we can think of a particular situation, let's say, where we tend to gossip a lot, and we can undertake the training to refrain from gossip. So whether or not we actually stop gossiping in that particular situation, we'll start learning something. Because when we're in that situation, if we've made this resolve, to some, at least at some, in some moments, we'll remember the resolve. And in remembering that resolve, will notice the force to want to gossip more clearly. And we'll see where that's coming from. And it's really important to see. And the whole this whole path is built on the premise that awareness is the great solvent. So anything that we need to let go of, it's not Mark, it's not my ego that lets it go. It's just seeing the pattern so clearly, that's what is the cause for the letting go. We can't do it directly. It's only through awareness of more, a, a more profound intimacy, clarity with whatever pattern that we're looking at. It's, that's the only way that things get transformed or things get let go of. So when we undertake a particular training, like refraining from something, then it really helps us uh, see what's there Seeing the unskillfulness, like if we see the, the constriction of the gossiping itself, like when we're in that activity of gossiping, on the surface, it might seem really juicy and fun. It might even seem like we're really connecting with our friends when we're gossiping. But if we're really sensitive, really present, we'll notice that if it's really an unskillful thing, so I'm assuming it's unskillful. By gossip, I mean talking about another person in a way that's harmful for ourselves and that other person. Because you may say, well, gossip isn't harmful. Well, the point is that I wouldn't call it gossip. <laughs> I'd call it talking, <laughs> you know, or having a nice conversation or something. So now I'm specifically talking about speech that's destructive, which I call gossip. 
And if it's truly destructive, that means we actually feel it. You can't, we can't do something that's destructive without actually feeling it on some level as a constriction or weight, hardness, heaviness in the heart. And that's, in, in Buddhism at least, that's the definition. When something's unskillful, it's because the intention itself is unskillful. And the intention is something that's happening in the mind right then and now. So if it's unskillful, then it has a particular quality, which is painful now and leads to more suffering in the future. And not necessarily just for ourselves. Often when we're being unskillful, it's not our own heart that we're weighing down, but we're also going to set emotion causes and conditions that cause other people to suffer. And so this is the creative use of restraint. But in working with our speech, we can also work with an ideal, which is just as, can be just as potent. Like uh, the Buddha talks about uh, speech a lot in terms of what you should restrain from, you know, restraining from harsh speech, restraining from slander, restraining from idle speech, restraining from telling lies. So we talked a lot about that last week. But he also talks about it in the positive, like uh, building a kind of uh, community by speaking in a way that, that actually supports people. Or one quote, um, he says, therefore express reality, not non-reality. Say what is pleasant. Speak what is true. Speak only words that do not bring remorse nor hurt another. That is good speech indeed. So we can probably think of all kinds of ways to sort of set this emotion. Like, you know, I'm going to go see my folks, and then we, we kind of cultivate a resolve not to refrain, but to do. You know, I'm going to really tell my dad how much I care about him, how much I appreciate all that he's done for me. And then we set that emotion, and then we try to act that, act, act that resolve out. Or when I see my friend, you know, I know she really or he really needs to talk about this, so I'm going to really just be there, be receptive, ask questions. So we can, we can kind of uh, use these training precepts to, to orient the heart in a positive direction, just like we can use these training precepts to move away from an unwholesome direction to refrain from an unwholesome activity. And then the last way that I want to talk more about tonight is uh, using the, the training precepts to discover a more effortless way of being skillful in life. So again, being skillful would mean that we're living in a way that promotes tranquility and insight throughout our day. Right? So how do we how does that look in terms of speech? How do we relate to speech? How do we get involved in speech in a way that is calming and enlightening, illuminating? One of the things that we do on Mondays at the Buddhist Studies class, this is a five-year program that people sign up for in, in eight-week sections, and we just kind of go through some of the basic teachings that the Buddha gave and try to apply them to our daily lives and our sitting practice. And one of the things we do every other week in the Monday uh, night course is we break into small groups of three, and uh, there's usually some theme that people have been practicing with during the week, and then they sit down really close together and... Uh, the, the instruction is to really come into the experience of the body and to be fully present with the body, even though they're about, the group is about to have a conversation. The primary anchor isn't like what the person's saying or what I should say if you're the one who's talking, but to be really present in the experience of the body. And then each person has about three minutes to talk. And the other people are just fully present. They don't need to nod. They don't need to say anything. In fact, they're instructed not to say anything while the person's speaking. 
but just to be grounded in the experience of their body, let's say 85% in their body and 15% hearing the words or something like that. But the idea is that we become, the more present we are with the body, we actually become a better listener. And, uh, and it's really the same thing when we speak. If when we're talking, we stay attuned to how it is in the body, it's like an ongoing feedback loop to ourselves. Like if we're speaking in a way where we really want to get something from who's ever listening to us, like trying to convince them I'm right. Well, we'll notice that in our body. If we're paying attention to our body, we'll feel that sort of leaning forward or that tightness. Or if we're not really connecting with our words, we'll notice that too in our body. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the body and the mind mirroring each other. And it's just so much easier to be mindful, to be present, intimate with the body. And the mind, the mental half of our experience is more subtle and more elusive. Not so easy to understand, to read. So one way to learn how to speak skillfully, effortlessly, and to speak, to use our this activity of our life, let's include listening and speaking as sort of one activity, this interacting with words, to use it in the service of wisdom and compassion and calm and peace is to understand this connection between speech or what the mind is doing and how the body is. And being grounded in the body then, the next step is to uh, cultivate this place. So here we are present in the body. So we're interacting with somebody, either in a big group or one-on-one. And we're present in the body. And then the next step is to cultivate a kind of equanimity where we don't have a preference for speaking and we don't have a preference for silence, not speaking. That's the important thing. And see, it's different for different of us. Some of us are more conditioned, more in the habit to be the speaker, and others of us are in the habit of being the listener. And of course, it's different for us with different people. You know, with some people, maybe we're the speaker, tend to be the speaker, the one who speaks, and other situations where the one who listens. Of course, not entirely, but generally. So the idea, though, is to, uh, to undermine any fear we have of speaking, of being assertive with our words, and to undermine any neediness to be heard, to speak, so that we're, our words aren't coming out of greed or fear, and our silence also isn't coming out of greed or fear. And so this is, this is more a more direct way where we're just, especially with practice, we can become actually quite good. Not, not, not necessarily in tense situations, difficult situations, but in ordinary situations, like uh, at the checkout line, where it's not highly charged. You're not going to have to live with this person for the rest of your life. And you can just drop into your body. And in being really intimate with your body, it's hard not to be intimate with that person who's in front of you. This is the thing, like I was saying about how the, the two mirror. Once we start being really intimate with something in the present moment, we're intimate with all things in the present moment. At least in this way of practicing. We're not being exclusive with our attention. So being intimate with the body doesn't imply that we have to be exclusive, that we're not intimate with other things. It's just this is like our way into intimacy is coming into the body, being vividly embodied, alive in the experience of the body. However that is, without preferences. And then it's so much easier then to just notice that we can be intimate with this human being at the checkout line. And often, if you're conditioned a certain way, and we all are to some degree, 
we can, when we're intimate with another person, it can be really scary unless we fill it with space. That's okay. Just notice the fear. And instead of saying something silly or kind of um, ordinary, like, wow, what a long winter we're having. <laughs> instead of that coming because we're afraid of the silence, we can just wait. So we feel the fear of the silence, but we don't respond to that, right? Because we're training to just let fear be fear. And because we're grounded in the intimacy of the body, we can just feel the fear in the body. And then, lo and behold, in the next moment, another impulse will arise, which is, she's just a human being. You know? And then we can say that silly phrase then. Wow, what a long winter we're having. But like I mentioned last week, what we're really saying is, you're a human being and I'm a human being, and we're intimate right now. That's really what we say sometimes when we say, what a long winter we're having. But other times when we say, what a long winter we're having, what we're really saying is, I can't stand silence, or I can't stand being here with you without sort of covering up the intimacy. And we're the only one who's going to know, and we'll only know if we're present. So this is a way of practicing in ordinary situations, is to be intimate with the body, which allows us to be intimate with the other person, and then to try to find this place where we don't need to fill the space up, but we're not afraid of filling the space up with a word or words. And then in that, in that neutral, equanimous space, we just wait for a wholesome intention to arise. And it's like we just let it come in, let it bloom right into action. It may be a smile, it may be that we say something, it may be that we respond to them and listen to them, invite them to speak. But we can, because it's a wholesome intention, we can just really let it bloom. We don't need to be afraid of it. Now sometimes something seems like a wholesome intention, and as we watch it bloom, we realize it's all about me. <laughs> we realize it's corrupted, it's self-centered, or it's about fear. You know, it's about manipulating the person, rationalizing our unskillful behavior, you know, like we do sometimes. So in order to be able to do this directly, we have to train in this way. And the way we train is to actively practice in some situations going to the nth degree of receptivity or silence, not speaking. Right? And what that will show up is all of our habits of wanting to speak but coming from an unwholesome intention like fear or like manipulation or greed. So we can practice silence in certain situations and just do that skillfully. Like when we go on retreat, we do what's called noble silence, where we, you know, we together agree not to speak unless there's some functional, there's something we got to figure out and it just makes a lot more sense to pull a staff person aside and ask a question than it does to take 10 minutes to write a note and then wait half a day to get a response to your note. But other than those sorts of things, we're really not speaking. And then we notice so much of our impulse to speak. We just learn so much and learn how easy it is actually to get away without speaking. How little we have to speak. And this is a great thing, you know, if you have a partner, somebody you live with, or even a good friend, to practice this sometimes. Like if you take a walk around Lake Harriet with a friend, to just say, well, for the first half of the lake, let's not talk. Let's just walk together. You know, or the first part of the meal, let's not talk. And then halfway through the meal, let's talk if we want. But it's just so nice to learn how to be in situations without having to talk. And so then we're just really cultivating the receptive mode. That's, what, that's why we don't speak on retreats, is when we go on a meditation retreat, we're taking time out to specifically cultivate the receptive 
part of the mind, our heart, where we're just being receptive to what's real, to what's happening. And uh, we get to see this fear of, of, of not putting forth a self. Because so much of the way we put forward a sense of self, that we remind ourselves that I'm here, is through words, through talking. And so if we put that aside and, and skillfully, creatively put that aside in periods of our life or periods of time, then we can see that. And in a way, we call that bluff. Like, it, it seems like we have to, but then when we don't, we realize we survived, not having to say something, not having to be somebody. And how wonderful that is, not to have to follow that impulse. And so then, only when we practice in this way, uh, cultivating the capacity to be receptive to the nth degree, so that we've learned how to be quiet, without creating tension. Now, we can all be quiet and create tension. It's like, you know, it's like we grit and we bear it. And then, of course, when the retreat's over, we talk like a maniac for three days. It's true. If you go on a, sometimes on your first long retreat, it's like a nine-day retreat, um, you know, it's fine during the retreat. And nobody wants to be around you when you get back because you just want to talk. Just can't, you just, and you may even notice that you just want to talk, but you just can't stop. Gosh, I just want to talk. I can't understand. <laughs> you even talk about that. <laughs> so, it's one of the most unpleasant situations I've ever been in is I've, I did a number of these three-month retreats at the Insight Meditation Society where you're doing the retreat with 80 or 100 other people. I forget how many people are there. And uh, then they have this like four-day or three-day transition period at the end of the retreat. Because they found if they just like ended the retreat and then sent people off, there were a lot of problems. Because <laughs> <laughs> So they said, well, let's help people make this transition. So they would sort of skillfully introduce speech for like a little part of the day, and then the next day a little bit more, and then the third day a lot more. And, and it was just so unpleasant for me just to be around all that explosive energy. I mean, this is after I kind of, I don't know why, but anyway, it was just overwhelming for me. So I would just hide during those, the transition period and uh, let Wynn handle my transition. <laughs> I'd get home and she could help me transition. But uh, so that that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is build up a skill of being relaxed with silence so that there's no there's nothing left over after having been silent because we've learned how to be silent without uh, it's just like it we've we've learned how to be naturally silent or quiet which is really great then when whenever we're in a situation that's an option that otherwise we might not have had to just be receptive to what's going on and then we have to do the opposite, too, especially if we have a certain kind of personality that tends to be reserved or tends not to speak up, that we have to consciously cultivate the skill to say what needs to be said. In other words, we have to weed out any fear of speaking up, any fear of being assertive. So we have to, like, pick situations, you know. And I know people do this where they... They say to themselves, um, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to this social situation, and I'm gonna have at least three conversations before I leave." You know, as a training, you know, to find a way to speak, to find some intention to speak out of that you feel safe enough, comfortable enough, that's wholesome enough to find something to say. Because actually, it's possible to find something to say. I can say, that's a nice blue sweater, you know? Or, you know, you look new. Is this your first time here? 
So we can find things to say that are really coming out of a wholesome intention. But it means overcoming any fear that we might have. And then when we get good at that, then we can uh, ask ourselves, uh, what things need to be said? What aren't we saying to people, to friends, that we really should be saying? These people deserve to hear this from us. Or in order to protect the relationship, I should really say this. Otherwise, my not saying it is undermining the relationship. It's somehow a breach in the relationship. And then we practice saying it. And it may be really messy. Just like at first, our silence will be messy because we'll be forced. But it's in forcing it that we learn how to be relaxed with the silence. And it's in sort of create. So these are artificial situations, but we develop skill. Like we learn how to speak in a wholesome way, from wholesome intentions. We find a way to be a social being. And basically, a lot of what we're doing is saying to the people around us that I love you and that it's nice to see you and that I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> you know, we're just, we're kind of uh, creating a metta, a loving kindness field in our speech. That's what we're doing with our smiles, our gestures, our simple words. We're, we're just, we're basically just. Uh, creating a soup that we all live that we're all comfortable living in and if we see very clearly the that intention as opposed to an intention to manipulate or to try to get something or to push away then this is a really great skill to have to be able to say skillful things wholesome things and to be able to say difficult things and this really has, the, the insight here is to know the difference between what's hurtful and what's harmful. And I'm just defining these words in a particular way to help make this point. And this is the way other teachers have used these words. So hurtful, hurtful just means that what we say to another person causes pain. But it doesn't mean that it harms them, that it causes lasting harm. Because, you know, a lot of the times we've been hurt, it set in motion something that's really been good for us. A lot of what's good for us is hurtful, hurts. So sometimes, and we need to have the skill to be able to say something that can be hurtful. One of the things I often say about having worked in the schools, uh, both elementary and junior high schools, for a number of years in the 80s and 90s, is that um, is I learned how to say difficult things. And I even learned how to raise my voice without getting tight or to sort of uh, be assertive in a way you know, that looked like I was angry. But it was like, this is the medicine that this person needed at this time. And to be willing to play that role, just like a mother or father is willing to basically do whatever to protect their kids, we should also be willing to do whatever as long as we're coming from a wholesome place. We don't need to be afraid, even if it hurts other people. And that's a real skill. It's like we have to develop that skill. I didn't know how to do that, especially the way I'm conditioned, which is you know, not to want to rock the boat. It was hard for me to be assertive as a classroom teacher, and then later as a behavior specialist in an inner city public school. It was hard to be assertive. But after, you know, failing miserably and, and trying to be nice, when the situation was an ask, uh, calling for being nice, you learn. You know, you eventually learn. And we can consciously take this on. So if we want our speech to be naturally right, naturally wholesome, and, and to do that effortlessly, then we have to make sure that we have the full range of responsivity available to us. Otherwise, we're going to do what's easy for us, and we're going to avoid doing what's not easy for us. So we have to have the skill, we have to have the habit, or the talent of being able to be silent and receptive. So 
sometimes people are making humongous mistakes and we're there and we could say something but it's not our responsibility or it's not our place to say something so we have to learn how to be completely receptive and watch everything fall apart even if it's something that we're part of we have to let it just fall apart because there is nothing we can say that's coming from a skillful intention anything we'd say at that point would be coming from hatred or aversion or fear or desire to make sure people know that it isn't our fault or something like that so we practice receptivity and there are other times when as much as we don't want this to be true we are the right person to stand up and say something we're the only person who can say something and and it's going to really affect a lot of our relationships so we don't want to be the person who has to say something but we're the person who's supposed to say something now and so it's really nice to be able to have that kind of strength and skill to be able to say what needs to be said and not to be afraid of the consequences but to really trust that as much as we can tell and we don't actually know for sure but as much as we can tell it's a wholesome intention that we're acting out there's so much to say about right speech or skillful speech but I want to save some time to hear from everybody else so maybe you have some examples in your life that you'd like to share with the group where you you felt like you were able to practice silence or practice speech in a way that was really skillful or ways where you thought you were skillful and later in hindsight saw that no you weren't that there was some unskillful intention masquerading as a skillful intention or any questions that you have about the talk what comes to mind Patty. Yeah, I recently I'm a volunteer coordinator for an organization up here, but I um, and we answer like a hotline 24 hours a day. And so there's someone that had been volunteering there a lot longer than me and was on the committee, and they we weren't able to get a hold of them when they had this hotline phone for like four days, and so I had to make a tough decision and. You know, I was really intimidated um, by the situation about how to go about taking this person off of volunteer commitment and someone more experienced and just my fear of that and how to say it. And I really spent a lot of time, you know, thinking and, and trying to find a good way to approach it with right speech. Um, and I tried to just and take myself out of it. But all those things you just talked about came into play when I started talking to her. And started crying and then she got really angry and I felt this real need to protect myself and, mm-hmm. um, but I just kept saying you know I am afraid you won't like me if I say this yeah. you know and that's not your problem but I just want you to know that you know I think that I need to step in here and say many things in your life right now aren't in the best place for you to be doing this but either way we get the phones answered and so I'm going to have to take you out the rotation um, and then I did a lot of backtracking, like, I'm sorry, and this is a big decision, it's not just me, and I didn't want to be in this job anyway. Well, but, but you know, kind of, I mean, one of the real gifts we can give another person is to be real. You know, to be transparent and to be, uh, to sort of expose our needs. Like when we have needs, it's good for them to be out there so that we see them and that other people see them. Because it's just easier that way. Just like it probably would have been easier if this person had been more upfront about their needs. You know, like their needs for someone to sub for them because their life isn't such that they can show up that they can be consistent so um, I think it can be really good to be clear about what our needs are and to be fearless about expressing them putting them out this is really hard for me to say this I that's true and there's something about speaking the truth that sort of uh, 
takes the charge out of a situation. So, you know, when I worked with little kids, the way, and this is, you know, good for adults too, but the way you teach this, and this is also a basic principle in the nonviolent communication system, which is a big program now being taught all around the country and everywhere in the world now, really, but is to understand what our needs are and to understand that other people have needs. So to learn first to recognize our own needs and then to recognize the needs that other people have. But with kids, it would, you know, to make it easy, it's just to teach them to use I statements. I want this. I feel like this. When you do that, I... So we're, we're kind of owning where we're at out loud with the person. And that can be really useful like in that situation. And we can even do that before we talk. We can just practice that. Well, what's going on for me? What do I need here? What am I feeling? I mean, this is basic mindfulness, but we're using language now to help us understand what I'm feeling, what my needs are, what's in the way of speaking. I'm afraid if I say this, this will happen. And each of these phrases or sentences is a statement of truth. I mean, if we're doing it right, it's a statement of truth, so it's really grounding. Just like avoiding the truth is disorienting, it just makes things fuzzier and weirder, but if we're actually stating something that's true, it like settles the whole thing, whether we're doing it alone in our own mind or we're doing it with another person, it's really grounding. And that's why repeating back is such a grounding thing. Like whether you're working with a kid or a friend or a partner. So what I hear you saying is, it seems like you're saying, and then you basically just repeat back what you heard. And it's like, it just sort of settles everything down. Okay, we're grounded in the truth. This is what's going on. This is what's being seen or felt here or known here. And as messy as that is, it's less messy than not doing it. You know, just like not talking to the person, as messy as that you might have felt that was, can you imagine how messy it was, would have been if you didn't do it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What are the thoughts that people have? I forgot your name. I'm Margaret. And um, I have some friends, and um, uh, I find it impossible to say anything to a friend that's negative about their behavior, or even if I think it's hurting them. And part of me says, I'm not the one to do this. be interested in that situation. I'd be interested in what is the impulse to want to say something to them? Where is that coming from? What does that feel like? sense that suffering is contagious and we don't want to be around people who are suffering because somehow it feels like it's affecting us so some some of that might be just being averse to this person's suffering and at the other extreme and again it's probably mixed is your heart's being touched by the suffering that this person and there's a kind of compassion where you're sensitive to their suffering but you're not afraid of it you're moved by it. Your heart is moved toward intimacy when you see this person suffering. And compassion by definition 
leads to this movement of wanting to do something. Well, not to fix it, but to to sort of move close, to be close, to not be afraid. So you have to see, is it, it's, and it's very hard, and you may not know until you speak up, and then you realize, oh, what was dominating was the fear, like the wanting to fix, or what was really stronger was the caring. You may not know, but look, try to know, and then at some point, you'll just decide. You either will say something or you won't. And as long as you're not saying something, keep looking at what the impulse is. Don't tell yourself you should or shouldn't say something, because you don't know. But just spend all your energy trying to look at the impulse. But give yourself permission to say something if, it, if you do. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I know that's a little fuzzy, but it's, this practice isn't so much about uh, here, we're never going to know. That's the point. Or maybe we'll know in hindsight if we're lucky. But we're never going to really know. But we, our job is just to keep looking. Look at the impulse to speak. Look at the impulse to not speak. And try to discern if it's coming from a skillful intention or not. But in terms of whether we speak or not, we're basically just allowing things to happen. Unless you've set up a particular training like, I'm orienting towards silence with this person, or I'm orienting towards assertiveness with this person. But if you haven't set up a particular training, then you're just allowing your personality to unfold with a lot of awareness of what's going on. If you're trying to fix something, I don't know what I'm trying to do anyway. I guess the thing that at the bottom of it is a fear of, of saying something and not being helpful at all. That's just doing damage and not really doing anything else but damage. Yeah. Well, you can always ask people, too, in, in certain ways. It's like it's really nice when friendships, sometimes we just intuitively know what kind of friendship we have. but. When, it's, when you can, it's really good to clear up with your friendships whether they want feedback about things or not. Because some friendships aren't that way. It's just not that kind of friendship. And other kinds of friendship, you really have that either spoken or non-spoken agreement, unspoken agreement, that it's okay. And she or he may have another friend that has that agreement. And you could talk to that friend say, it doesn't seem to be my role. You seem to have this kind of relationship with this person. If it ever makes sense to you, it seems like this person, this is a blind spot for this person. It'd be good feedback for them to get. But I can't, I don't, it doesn't seem appropriate for me to bring it up. So that might, that may be something to do too. Not forever. <laughs> so let's take a, a few seconds. We need to end it here. But we can move on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.